Hey, Jason, it's Mark uh, living here in Europe, the Czech Republic. I'm down at my Airbnb in Austria right now. And I just wanted to congratulate you on a, the thousandth show. Uh, congratulations on all the shows. You probably don't hear from only a fraction, probably don't hear from most people just how much the shows have helped, how much we listen to them, how much we appreciate them, and just all the best. Congrats. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1225-1225. Thank you for joining us today. I've got Adam here with me. And before we get to our guest today, who will be from Marriott, we have a Marriott executive with us talking about how institutional players are entering the short-term rental space in a big way and what this means to us as real estate investors and the overall landscape of the market. Adam, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Good to have you. And I must say, happy belated birthday to you. I appreciate it. Yeah, another year older, another year richer. That's how it goes when you're a real estate investor, huh? Yeah, it is. It's going well. It's going well yeah. in that regard. Yeah, you, you do feel like you're getting richer, don't you? It's not a bad feeling. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> Even a socialist like yourself. <laughs> getting richer get isn't that bad. Everybody should try it. Everybody should try it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Are you self-managing any of your properties yet, or are you strictly with our managers? I am currently strictly with the managers, but... I have had many pointed conversations with our property managers and am very close to telling them goodbye. Buzz off. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's that song uh, from the 70s. It's an old funny song, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, Stan. Don't need to be coy, Roy. Just set yourself free. <laughs> it's this funny song. It's hilarious, right? Drop off the key, Lee. Don't need to discuss must. <laughs> so let's just say I'm considering hilarious. it enough that one of the things I got for my birthday was a self-management book. Yeah, yeah. And that we've interviewed that author on the show before. And I'll tell you, folks, many times getting that third party out of the way in any area of your life. I'm not just picking on property managers, although they deserve some picking. Just doing things directly can be um, easier. It takes less time. Again, that is the irony. That is the surprise, the pleasant surprise that dealing directly can be easier then, you know, because most people, and the reason I say that is most people think, well, I don't have time to self-manage my properties. I'm a busy person. Okay. And I can afford a manager. It's no big deal to pay someone 90, hundred bucks a month to do all the management work. And I would agree with you conceptually, but in practice, self-management can be less time consuming because when you get those conflicting agendas out of the way, 
it just becomes easier. And, you know, Adam, if there's one thing I am really excited about, and I think it's going to be the best thing we've ever done, is our empowered investor community, our empowered investor community, very powerful place where people can get help with self-management. And they can get help with management too. You don't have to be a self-manager, but a significant amount of the focus will be on self-management in that group. If you want to be free, Lee, and you want to have your manager drop off the key, <laughs> you can you can save the money it will cost to join the empowered investor community will be saved easily with just, if you have only one property, you'll pay for it easily. But if you have more than one property, you'll really make your money back many, many times over. So keep listening for more updates on that as we progress with it. But it's just, I think it's going to be the best thing we ever did. Hey, let's look at a little snapshot of the market before we get to our guest uh, today. Uh, Jennifer Shea is on the show. And I got to tell you something funny. I said to her, are you related to Tony Shea? And she goes, no, but my shoe collection would be much better if I was, <laughs> because, of course, he's the founder of Zappos. <laughs> I, I'd been to his home many times in La, Las Vegas for brunch, and I talked about that on prior episodes, and he sold to Amazon for, I don't know, like around a billion dollars, give or take. So, uh, yeah, an amazing entrepreneur rebuilding downtown Las Vegas. He's doing some incredible stuff. Must be fun to be a billionaire and, you know plan a whole city basically right it's it's pretty cool yeah, if making hey, money's fun then uh, having a billion dollars would be a whole lot of fun yeah that's for sure and spending it in in a productive way is really fun too spending it frivolously is sort of temporarily fun but it's really fun to spend it productively and and create things like a city or whatever hey so we're looking at the zillow home value index putting homes right now at $226,800. Now, this is not the same as the median home price, okay? Uh, and there are varying opinions as to the median home price. Zillow says it's 226, but that's their index, okay? That's not the official index. And the median listing price is 289 and that's on Zillow. These are only Zillow stats, right? Yeah, it's it can vary significantly. As we talked about before, there's another article from Inman where they say the median home value is 300000 So take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, I think it depends who you're asking. <laughs> Definitely who you're asking. But what's interesting about this is the uninformed person might see this and say, oh, well, the median value and now I'm looking just at the Zillow stats, is 220, I'll round off, 227,000, and the median list price is 290,000. Well, that must mean people are negotiating the homes down by, uh, you know, in the neighborhood of 60,000 bucks. No, it doesn't mean that. It just means the homes that are actually selling are selling for 227, okay? And the homes that are listing are listing at 290, okay? So that's what that means, just so you know. But the median sale price, here it gets even more confusing, as of March 31st, 2019, is $234,500, and that is up, or the forecast for the next year is for it to be up 2.8%, but they don't say what's gonna go up. Is it the Zillow Home Value Index, or the list prices, or the sales prices, or who the heck knows, so whatever, whatever, whatever. But you see in looking at the chart that the low was uh, 2012, interestingly. Now, see, that's not where I would put the low. 
I would put the low at 2009 or 10 probably. But, you know, just kind of interesting. Yeah, and they're also saying that the average days that it's for sale on Zillow is 81 days. Yeah, that's actually a little bit long, I think, yeah. for average days. Yeah, and I'm the, kind of It's kind of scary that. to me. There's 8% of homes, even with the run-up, 8% of homes have negative equity. That is, isn't that surprising? 8.2% to be specific, negative equity, and 1.1% of homes are delinquent on their mortgage. Really kind of amazing in this economy where you've got the home prices up so significantly. I, I'm surprised anybody could be underwater still, but that is pretty amazing. Hey, let's look at some um, rental stats for a minute. The Zillow Rental Index, okay, is $1,486. It's the median rent zestimate valuation for a given geographic area. Now we're talking about the entire United States as our given geographic area. And then they do something called the break-even horizon. So this is the number of years after which buying is more financially advantageous than renting. And that's two years, they say. Now, you know, a lot goes into that equation. And it depends where you are, what you're buying. That's just really a hard equation. But we could we should dice that up a little more on a future show. Any thoughts about that one? Well, I was just thinking if the break-even horizon at $1,486 is two years, when you look at the higher-end markets, I would assume your break-even gets even even worse. Or depending on who you are, which side of the table you're on, or even better. Right? right. If you're a tenant on the higher end of the market, I mean, that's just a, a smoking great deal. I, I really wish I didn't end up buying a home this time when I moved to Florida. I really would much rather rent a high-end property. But like I said in my search over the course of several months, there just wasn't much to choose from. And, and my theory, I mean, I don't know if it's a theory or actual knowledge because everything I looked at, it seems like a lot of them turned into short-term rentals sucking a lot of that higher end inventory out of the marketplace. So that was discouraging for me. I'm stuck being a homeowner and I'd really rather just be an investor who owns lots of other properties that people rent from me. <laughs> yeah. So one of the reasons we're talking about this is we've talked before about the homeownership percentage, the percent of homeowners. And then you and I talked before and you talked with Doug as well about what would happen if the mortgage industry goes back to privatization? Yes, and Fannie the, Mae and Freddie Mac. If that if that stops becoming a uh, if that stops being a government subsidy. Yeah, and we talked about home ownership rate there. Now the median household income right now in the United States is just under sixty thousand dollars. And so you and I got together and we looked at if you had a monthly income of five thousand dollars, if your monthly expenses were eight hundred dollars, which is yeah. pretty low. Right. I mean, if you have two car payments, you're looking at probably at least $800. And if God you have forbid student you loan have debts, student loan, yeah, or a credit card or yeah. anything else, yeah. yeah. And if you have a 20% down payment, if your interest rate is 3.875%, so... Which is smoking great. Yeah. That is a fantastic interest rate. It's really amazing how unaffordable the market is becoming for, for buyers, right? Yeah, at that rate, the most you could get in a loan is $215,000, which even on the low end of Zillow's median home price value, you couldn't buy a house. You couldn't yeah. buy a house to live in. So right. if you look at this, at where home prices are now and where incomes are, the home ownership rate, if it gets privatized, might drop worse than we were thinking. As I've said many times before, I, I just anecdotally 
feel, and it's funny, Adam, you asked me off air today, you asked me something about why I think the homeownership rate should be 50 to 55%. And that's just my gut feeling. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not giving you any like major data on that. That's just where I think it should be. You know, this theory of the high homeownership rate being good for society is just complete bunk. It's simply not true. There's lots of evidence that would go the other way on that. You know, now you individually listening may want to own a home or you may not, but homeownership is kind of overrated. I, I really tell you. And I can't believe, because I, I haven't been a homeowner for a while. I really enjoyed renting, the flexibility, the ease of use. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly in the real estate game in a big way personally, but as an investor, but in owning a home again, I mean, these expenses are just, I think about that expense this, expense that, all these expenses I never thought about as a renter. You know, they're all coming back to me because (laughs) the last time I owned uh, my own home and I virtually almost always owned my own home until 2011 when I sold my last place in Orange County and moved to Arizona. So homeownership's expensive. It's also expensive on your thoughts. It weighs on you a lot more than it does if you're not a homeowner. Just the maintenance and the the thinking about it. There's a lot of mental energy that goes into it. I don't know if, how many of you really realize how much that weighs on you. I just plugged in some new numbers to this. If we had the privatization and if rates went up to 7%, Ooh, the, yeah. everybody the, would be knocked out of the market. <laughs> you look at the estimated home price you can get is $172,000. Now there's oh. two things that could happen here. Number one, very, very few people can afford a house. Or number two, housing prices across the country are coming down. They will come down. Oh, they will come down. But it takes a long time for that to happen, Adam. It's a slow process. But if you look at a drop from, let's just say, 225000 to 175000 that is a massive cut. And that will have significant impact on the country if you're looking at, what is that, almost a 20% decline in home prices. You think if 8% are underwater right now, Oh, a lot more people will become underwater, but that mortgage money will dry up. So those people will not be refinancing. And think about what that does to rents, though. I mean, all those people have to live somewhere. Remember, the rough number is 1% in homeownership equals approximately 1 million renters. Okay, so every time you knock 1% off the homeownership rate, you pick up another million renters. Wow. For investors, that is just phenomenal. That is just a phenomenal deal. So here might be the way this works out. And these are huge speculations, right? But say, for example, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac became privatized, causing interest rates to go up or mortgage rates to go up because they didn't have that government backing, right? If that happened and that secondary market became privatized, Say interest rates went up by 2% or 3% and that caused prices to decline. Nobody's motivated to buy because prices are in a downward pattern and they've still got to do something. They've still got to rent. So people start walking away from their homes because they're underwater and they don't care anymore. They do strategic defaults. They do loan modifications. uh, They do short sales. Okay. Then we see massive upward pressure on rents at the same time. We see the GDP slow a bit because the economy, certainly a large part of it's based on real estate. So we would see a slowing 
a sector of the economy slow down, which feeds into a lot of other sectors, of course. It's a pretty interesting scenario. So for investors, you know, the question you might be asking is, well, what do I do if this happens? And again, this is a giant if. It may never happen. Okay, so we're being completely speculative here. Just understand that. But if it happened, what you would do is you would go and renegotiate all your mortgages on all your properties and get loan modifications on them. Right. (laughs) And then you would see rents go up at the same time. So, again, it's always a matter of making it through that two year period. When the cycle changes, it takes about two years for things to start reaching some sort of equilibrium usually, right? And so that's when you renegotiate your loans. You get workouts and uh, even principal reduction knocked off your loans. We saw it happen many times during the Great Recession. So the people who have the leverage have the power. Yeah, and if you want to see a big drop, if it gets privatized and the 30-year goes away and you can only get a 15-year loan term, you're looking at an estimated home price of 140000 Right, but just because the 30-year loan goes away doesn't mean the amortization will be only over 15 years. They can certainly amortize it over 30, just make it due or renegotiable in 15. You know, the way they do it in Canada and a lot of places where you renegotiate the mortgage after, say, five years. In other words, it becomes adjustable. Right. And you can refinance or whatever. It's just fixed for a certain lo- smaller period of time, not not three decades. Oh, which, I'm just saying if you wanted a 15-year yeah. fixed rate. Right. You know, because, people are still going to be in that mindset at first of, I need to get a long, as long as I can fixed rate. This mm-hmm. is what I need to do. It, it would change over time, but initially people are, the mindset's just going to be, I need a fixed yeah. term. Well, the other thing that would happen is, see, you, there's all these unintended consequences whenever anything happens, right? The other thing that would happen is it would become an adjustable rate mortgage. And like I uh, talked about, I gave everybody a lesson on how to understand and evaluate adjustable rate mortgages. So we'd move into an adjustable rate market. One thing to also remember, though, is that most of the times the rate on that shorter term loan would be a little bit lower. So there are some compensating factors. It might be a quarter point lower to three eighths of a point lower on the shorter term. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to speculate. But again, we speculated about this a long time ago at Meet the Masters in, I think, 2011. It didn't happen. One thing I will say is we speculate about this. But in my opinion, what this tells me is if it gets this bad in the speculation, there is no chance the federal government is going to let this happen if they look at the facts and they think, man, are we really going to to do this? Because we're not going to get reelected if the market goes down like this. Well, it, it would have to be a soft landing. I mean, they'd be crazy to do this abruptly. You know, it would have to be a slow turnover, which I'm sure it would be a, a slow, gradual change where, you know, the economy and the marketplace can hopefully adjust to it. So I just think it shows that it's very unlikely we can we hear a lot of talk about the idea of privatizing it, but it's just one of those things they they did it and unwinding what the government does is <laughs> that's a feat in and of itself. Of course it is. Of course it is. Yeah, no question about that. Hey, a couple other data points before we get to our guest. Median list price per square foot 
$155, and most of our investors listening to this right now are buying through our network at jasonhartman.com slash properties at significantly lower than 155 per square foot, unless they're buying brand new construction, you know, especially some of our short-term rental product in, in some prime areas. And 14.7% of listings have a price cut as we see the market softening in those uh, cyclical markets, uh, and as it should be. The median rent we talked about, 1486 on the Zillow rent index, break-even horizon two years, list price of rentals, $1,700, and rent list price per square foot, $1.19 per month per foot to rent. So some interesting stats there. Adam, you ready to go to our guest? Let's do it. All right, let's talk with Jennifer Shea and uh, see how the institutional investors are playing in the marketplace. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, Marriott about that today. And be sure to go to jasonhartman.com for property information, upcoming events. Keep following for more information on the empowered investor community. A big thing for us. Here's our guest. It's my pleasure to welcome Jennifer Shea. She is Vice President of Homes and Villas at Marriott International. Jennifer, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's good to have you on. So Marriott and a lot of the other large institutional players are getting into the the short-term rental business in terms of renting homes, high-end homes in, in many places. That's a departure from the typical hotel business, but... It has been going on a while, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, renting homes has manifested it in different ways. And so as a holiday company, we've been in not just hotel business. We have branded residences. We also have resorts. We also have vacation properties. And so as I think about, as we think about what products we deliver, we really take a step back and say, what are the types of accommodations that our guests need and want? And then we try to continue to evolve to meet those changing needs. Okay, great. So can you distinguish, you know, of course, everybody knows what a Marriott hotel is, but what is sure. a branded residence? What is a vacation? You said like three other things there, I think. What, what, sure, what exactly sure. are all of those things? Our branded residence products are products where we have built, and a really good example is the Ritz-Carlton. And in Washington, D.C., we have the beautiful Ritz-Carlton Washington, D.C. Hotel, We've also built a series of residential homes in a large building right next to that hotel. And so those are essentially what we call branded residence products, where individual owners and homeowners invest and purchase those specific units. And some of our branded residence products give those homeowners the option to work with our home rental program to rent those units out. You'll also see consumers will see Marriott vacation properties that are available. We've got quite a few in Florida where consumers uh, may purchase a portion of a timeshare to be a participant in that particular product. Both of those are examples of how, um, from Marriott's perspective, we go beyond uh, hotel rooms in the traditional sense and we look at products that may evolve and be a little different. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. So the branded residences are individually owned then. They're, they're not Marriott owned. Okay. Correct. How does that work when someone puts their branded residence or I guess maybe even their timeshare 
Well, the timeshare thing's probably already been covered a lot. Let's talk about the residences mostly. How does it work when they put it into the Marriott rental pool? And can they do things outside of the Marriott rental pool as well? You know, like obviously Airbnb or the other place. For many of our owners of the residences, they love what the brand represents. And so if you're at a Ritz-Carlton brand residence or a, a W Hotel brand residence, they love the sense of aesthetic and design as well as service that supports that. And so they really buy into that unit for what the brand delivers. Now, many of them may use those residences as a second home. And so they want the opportunity for uh, Marriott and the management company to be able to rent their homes out uh, when they're not occupied. And so that's really done through our hotel resident uh, rental program. And so we've had a program similar to this for many years. And so it's interesting as we've seen the sharing economy evolve, how it feels like it's a very new thing, but property managers and beach home rentals and branded residential uh, rentals are actually not that new in the marketplace. I think where um, we have been operating is really focusing on evolving how we do business and deliver choice to our guests throughout the years. And over the last few years, we have absolutely seen the sharing economy take off. Mm -hmm. We know that the short-term home rental business represents about $150 billion in terms of an opportunity. And I think we all have, whether it's ourselves or our family and friends, who um, have articulated the need to say, I would like to go on vacation, but I want to go with a large group of friends, or we want to do a family reunion, and we want the ability to spend time together just sitting around the fireplace and drinking wine, or I want a pool where lots of kids and cousins can play. And we've been watching that change and shift in behavior um, very carefully and really thinking about what approach does Marriott have to serve that specific need for our guests. Mm -hmm. In terms of the demographics, obviously a company with the type of resources that Marriott has, I'm sure knows their demographics, but who does it appeal to? Is it an upscale baby boomer? It doesn't, interestingly, seem like this would hit the millennial market very well. Mm. Maybe if they want to get a bunch of, you know, folks together and hang out, but who's your target? It's interesting. One fact that we know is that we do an annual survey and, and in 2018, we asked our Marriott Bonvoy members what percentage of them had stayed in a home rental over the past 12 months. And 27% of our members have said that they've done that. And our members span everywhere from, you know, millennials to the silent generation. And what we're finding is that this is not a customer demographic specific offering. It's what we call a trip purpose offering. So when you travel and you travel on business, you probably have a different set of needs and preferences than when you travel with your family on vacation, than when you travel with college Mm -hmm. friends that are going to celebrate a 40th birthday. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we're finding that the notion of having a home rental really is driven by the purpose of the trip. Mm-hmm. And so I'd actually say quite a few millennials find this to be really appealing, mm-hmm. particularly globally. As you're beginning to travel, you may not have a large extended family yet, but you do have a large group of friends. We all love, well, I personally love a great girls trip away to Sonoma and touring the wineries and staying at a phenomenal home on an estate with multiple acres is a dream come true. 
And Mm so we're finding that whether you're in the life stage where you're traveling with friends or if you have a young family where you need multiple bedrooms because the kids all have different nap times, access to a refrigerator to keep the baby's bottle and to feed the kids at any given time, uh, a backyard space to let kids burn off energy or even better, a pool for them to splash and play in. Um, And then absolutely, you see us uh, really active around the Gen X and the boomers who um, are beginning to think about things like reunions and milestone birthdays and multi-generational grandparents-speaking kids. Sure. Okay. If these are Marriott residences, and I'm guessing that the offering is, look, with a large provider, a chain, a franchise, you know, you sort of, the consumer knows what they're going to get, right? They have some expectations. With Airbnb, hey, it's hit and miss, you know, it might be great, it might be awful. How does Marriott service these scattered individual residences or are they not scattered? Are they only residences that you sell maybe in a condo tower like a Ritz-Carlton? What's the model there? Yeah, let me make a distinction for you. When I talked a little bit about uh, branded residences earlier, that's a different product than the product we just launched, which is Homes and Villas by Married International. So the branded residences have been products that have been around for many years. Mm -hmm. What we just launched, which is more focused in what I'd call the short-term home rental space, is Homes and Villas by Married International. And it is a curated offering of over 2,000 premium homes or luxury villas in destinations around the world. And so what we heard from our guests was we don't like the unknowns. And when we go on vacation, we want to focus on time together and not have to worry about things that we're not sure of. Like, will the home Uh look as similar to the photos as I expected. And they never do. What happens? <laughs> no, everybody right. gets you know, it. Everybody knows the problem. Yeah, sure. Oh, okay. Right. So how, then, how does Marriott service that though? Do you have someone dropping sure. by a couple of times a day to check in or, or what, what happens? So the difference, what's unique about our model is that every single home is operated by a professional property management company. And so these homes are located around the world and we have identified the best professional property managers who take care of the operations of the home, the maintenance of the home, all the service, the 24-7 service that we make available to our guests. And so what we do as Marriott is we develop the standards and the criteria, and then we hand select the homes that meet those criteria, whether the criteria is around design, safety, the, the location, the amenities that are provided, all those homes. We work very closely with our property management company partners, and we essentially curate this collection of phenomenal and unique offerings. And our homes really vary. You could get a simple A-frame cabin nestled in South Lake Tahoe that accommodates up to six, all the way up to a private beach villa in the Turks and Caicos that can accommodate 18 people, and it comes with a private chef servers and housekeeping. Okay. All right. So I want to ask you a really broad question. I have no facts for what I'm about to say. I just want to make that disclaimer right away. It's an anecdotal impression. But as we have been studying and following the short-term rental market for many years now, and our core business is in the long-term rental business, it seems to me 
like so many people on the investor side are jumping onto the Airbnb type short-term rental model that the supply has massively increased. And of course, hotels are still being built. I mean, the supply of regular traditional hotel rooms has increased too. And yeah, the population's increased a little bit, but it's not that much. And we've been in a booming economy. So people are traveling, they're vacationing, you know, they're doing business trips, et cetera, et cetera. Is the market oversupplied? And of course, you'd have to slice and dice and ask, you know, which type of product. But it, it seems to me that there are an awful lot of high-end short-term rentals in the world available now, more than ever, I'm sure. What happens when the economy uh, hits a recession? Of course, Marriott has to be thinking about this, and I'm sure you have contingency plans, you know, or is there so much demand for this type of product that it's still undersupplied? I I just don't know. My impression is it's oversupplied, but I could be wrong. Well, that's a really interesting question because we continue to see growth in travel. And I think one of the the unique aspects of the home rental market is that we're actually not building new homes to go into this market. Mm -hmm. We're taking existing homes that individual owners have today, and oftentimes they're to be second vacation rental homes. And Mm -hmm. in many cases, they're primary residences. Right. And what we're doing here is we're not introducing additional inventory. We're curating the best of that inventory and taking away much of the challenges that you just articulated, which is there's a ton of supply out there. Consumers have a very difficult time really discerning what's going to be a great experience that them and their loved ones will enjoy. For us and our product, what we really brought to the table are is the hospitality expertise, mm-hmm. where we know how to curate the best homes, develop service and design standards that we know our guests are going to feel the assurances and the trust that Marriott can deliver. Okay. I get all that. I'm just talking about the broader market. And, you know, that's my question. And maybe you don't know the answer because it's not what you do. You know, it's not your specialty. It's kind of interesting, though, because when you look at the sharing economy impact and you look at other sharing economy companies like Lyft and Uber, for example, right? Right. Sure, there were some new cars built for drivers to drive them. But by and large, they took existing cars that were already there, just like you said about the home inventory, and just and just put them to more use, right? So the amount of uh, supply didn't really have to change, but the type of supply did. So that wealthy person who had their second home in Tahoe, as an example, or in the wine country or whatever, they're getting extra income now. Great for them. But there's a lot more supply of short-term rental product on the market than ever before. I just got to wonder if that's going to really swing when the economy swings. And it's not just the economy. It's not just the fear of a recession in general, but the rising fuel costs that would make airlines more expensive or any kind of travel more expensive is another potential impact, right? Right. The sharing economy is a part of a quickly growing global passion for travel. And so if you take a look at countries in Asia Pacific and that population and their desire, their huge desire to travel, whether it's within Asia Pacific or outside, I think what we're seeing is, frankly, the globalization of travel and how we are, the sharing economy is absolutely making it easier for consumers and providing them more choice. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Give out your website. Homes and Villas by Marriott.com. Thank you so much, Jennifer Shea. All right. Thanks. 
Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.